Hello, and welcome to the Leaders in Learning Design podcast by Blue Consulting and Resourcing, the place to get up-to-the-minute information for cutting-edge learning design. So, listeners, Graham and I are here today. We have a few concerns. So, Graham, tell me about what you've been thinking lately. Well, what I've been thinking, John, is really linked to a lot of what I'm reading and hearing. And, and what I, I'm getting at is there seems to be a really big shift towards and a lot of interest in the concept of curated learning. And, and I know a lot of people are going down this path. And I just have a, a big worry that that means for a lot of the people listening in today, as instructional designers, that could mean, quite honestly, that they become redundant. Because I see if it's about curated learning and providing people with access to lots and lots of different resources, very little of it is going to need to be instructionally designed for a specific need. And it's mostly just going to be aggregations of generic stuff. So that's why I'm honestly worried about the future of instructional design as such, because I think it's going to become less the case that we need customized, specifically addressed to need. And in future, we'll be throwing people a bunch of resources and saying, figure out for yourselves. And I hope some of this is relevant in a nutshell. Well, I can hear your concern and... To be honest, I've been teaching instructional design or mentoring instructional designers almost my entire career. But I don't think that the need for quality instructional design disappears with curation. Curation um, assumes that there's high quality product to assemble, that there are experts guided with um, good exercises and activities that help the learner to apply the content. The need for quality content isn't going away, but maybe the need for as many uh, instructional designers isn't on that endless upward trajectory, that we're going to sort of level out a little. I don't know that it makes a strong argument that's going to disappear entirely. There are still a need for instructional experts or learning experts, if you will, that have to create those pathways, that have to create that good content. For example, when I was teaching at a large university, um, almost every department had a version of statistics. It was a massive overlap that was unnecessary. But the bandwidth for faculty and the need for customizing statistics for their particular field, what was acceptable and not acceptable, um, in agronomy, for example, in statistics, where you can control every element of your experiment, it's quite different than what you could do, say, in education, where people are notoriously difficult to control. So the factors that you can work with and the statistics that best suit those vary a little, and you need examples to be able to show quality research. But at its core, statistics for research is very, very similar. So there was a huge amount of redundancy as we looked at the versions of statistics. And then that's just within a single institution. Then multiply that across 
every university that teaches anything related to research or statistics, and you've got massive duplication and not everyone does a great job of teaching statistics. So let's pull a few that are really good, that have powerful examples that make it, <coughs> excuse me, that make it simple and easy for the learner to grasp. So that kind of duplication exists in industry too, where you might have a OSHA class that exists in pretty much every company uh, where they're talking about safety standards of one kind or another, but safety in manufacturing is not the same as safety at a bank or many other businesses, but the core principles of OSHA are pretty dang similar. So could we get value from having experts deliver those courses and instructional designers figure out how to flavor them by institution? So that customization is still there, but it's not at the it's not at the unique content generation level. Does that make sense? It, it does. And I hear you being positive about that because of a lot of the interaction that you, you're having with organizations who are wrestling with this. But if I'm thinking of, you know, 10 years ago, if I was an instructional designer in a large organization, it was quite likely that I would receive a call internally that would ask me, could you put together a workshop on communication skills, let's say, for my customer service representatives? And I would go away and I would spend a few weeks understanding the need, looking at some models of communication, trying to tailor a solution for the particular customer service need in my organization, and I create a solution. Now, I'm worried that the organization just says to the customer service reps, Oh, there's a bunch of stuff out there from Skillsoft and LinkedIn Learning. Here's a list of them, what, 22 different courses. Pick the one that you think is going to help. That's my worry. I, I think we might be throwing out the baby with the bathwater and might indeed create such a poor reputation for L&D because people won't necessarily be fulfilling their needs. So, so I'm still anxious, Joanne. It does still have the uh, potential for a spray and pray solution. Um, here's all the bits. Uh, let's hope one of these meets your need. But at the same time, it also allows a degree of customization, especially if you are coming at the learning profession from an assessment standpoint. Can I do the needs analysis and diagnose the need and put together some recommendations? Perhaps your communication issues are written communication. So it begins to narrow it down and I have buckets, buckets of options, if you will, that allow the learner to say, you know, I, I feel really comfortable standing in front of a crowd doing a presentation. That's not my kind of communication need. I personally feel that I have this need. Um, some of those domains are really big and a learner doesn't necessarily know where to start. But we're becoming a swipe sideways side uh, society where it's like, hmm, click on it. Does it seem relevant? No, swipe. Does it seem relevant? Does this something I want to dig into? Hmm, no. Oh, maybe this one is. Hold on, let me w watch 30 seconds of it. Oh, I really like this presenter. 
I like their voice. I like the way they're discussing the topic. So they're more captivating. We're choosing learning based on a lot of other factors rather than their actual expertise. Um, and we may not be as consciously aware of why we're choosing because those are all uh, factors that work on the subconscious. So I do see your concern. Uh, it's difficult to be able to say, is this solution going to meet the need? You know, I was having a conversation just very recently with uh, an organization who are going down this curated learning path, big style, Joanne. And they were saying that the, the answer to this are, to quote them, carefully constructed pathways. <laughs> I, I hear that, you know, and, and you chuckle and, and, and I wince because I worry a lot that the idea of a truly carefully constructed pathway is a bit of an exaggeration. Because I think the, the easiest way that they an organization would quickly create pathways would be just to lump stuff together that looks on the face of it possibly relevant to a role or a skill without necessarily drilling down like you and I would like to to really understand the learning objectives to really understand the need and to really understand what the solution is going to address via v that need I think there's a real likelihood that pathways will be put together far too quickly with not enough consideration, not enough attention to detail and thought. And I bet, here's the worst bit, I bet they don't get updated for a long time. And, and I, all of that just makes me feel really anxious about the way that this is going to be perceived by learners who, as you say, end up just scanning through a bunch of stuff and doing what they fancy based on whatever criteria. At the end of the day, if people's skills and performance don't improve and if they haven't demonstrably learned, then the people who are going to pick up the can are the L&D folks and it's going to taint what I think we were achieving and I think we might be diluting that and then heading for a, a backlash, a concern. So, you know, sorry to be doom and gloom, but What's your thoughts on these pathways, Joanne? Have you seen them put together in the way that you would expect and like them to be put together? Well, the short answer to that is no. Um, unfortunately, to be able to create really good pathways, you either have to have extremely good knowledge of the learning need or you need really deep knowledge of the domain. And unfortunately, a lot of learning professionals are being asked to do that with neither of those as their background. So domain knowledge within a particular content area, say you're a communications expert, even within that domain, you probably have a specific focus. So you're less aware of other sequential pieces of the task that need to be put together in a specific order, why that order is important, and how that order supports um, final performance. 
but you're trying to understand that and your domain knowledge is really deep and very specific. So if you're an expert in communication, you would probably have an expertise in a specific model or a set of models and you're trying to accomplish that goal. So the pathway that you would recommend is a series of activities and concepts that build on each other that make the learning really easy. Um, if you understand the learning gap that you're trying to bridge, you know what the average prerequisite knowledge set is, and then you're trying to say, you know, people who are novice in this can be generally assumed to have this level of understanding. And then we're going to build on that by adding in these additional things so that we can get them to that final goal. But if a pathway is recommended based on other things, so one of the most common in the marketplace right now is just recommender algorithms. People in a role like you took this course. You might like to take this course too. I mean, it's built on Amazon's model. It's really, it's a recommender system at its, at its heart. So we like to sort of gussy it up and make it pretty and make it like a library where the librarian looked at that shelf of books and pulled out one or two and put them, turned them, not binder edge out, but face out. And your eye is caught by the jacket of their book. And you think, oh, that one sounds interesting. Let me have a look. And you flick through it. And then you say, nah, it's not really me. And you put it back. And, but your eye has been caught by the ones that they're recommending. And a good librarian pulls out a variety of books different times, moves them around, trying to uh, catch people's interests who are already in that section. So a recommender system is helpful if it's being recommended based on some logic. So in a library, it's because you're looking at the cookbooks on Italian cooking. And so this book by a new Italian chef catches your eye because you're in that section looking for something inspiring to make or something new that you want to learn about. But when you are shopping on Amazon, the fact that you clicked on something or hovered over something isn't necessarily an indicator that you want that. And same thing in LinkedIn, just because I pulled up a course for some purpose that you have no idea about, um, it might have been for my child, it might have been for work, it might have been for a hobby. Now you're constantly recommending more courses in that space as if I have a learning deficit in that area. And it's not necessarily based on anything specific for the actual need. It's all of the peripheral things. And it can get really hinky fast where you get random recommendations. And then, you know, the business has to make money. So now someone's course that's paying for additional marketing bumps up. It has nothing to do with the quality of the course, only that they paid more for the marketing. So curation gets diluted quickly and these pathways become higgledy-piggledy at best. And it's interesting, isn't it, when that word pathway itself, it, it's being interpreted quite differently in uh, lots of different cases. And what I mean by that, 
Um, I think I've seen examples of pathways, not being a pathway, but being a smorgasbord of things that you might find interesting. And, and pathway to me infers a sequence of progression. You start a path at a point of origin and you follow the path to the point of destination. And I, I haven't seen a lot of pathways that resemble that latter definition. I've seen a lot more that resemble the previous definition. And do you remember, you and I, a few years ago now, we we weren't calling it a pathway, but we were very much involved in creating a lot of what we called wrappers at the time. So we would look at a training need and we would provide a wrapper which gave an organization a sequenced pathway through some defined learning solutions, but providing something between the solutions or in addition to the solutions, because they were generic solutions, but we were wrapping them up in such a way that, back to my example of communication skills for customer service reps, there would have been interim activities, interim assignments, things that connected the generic learning to the next piece of generic learning and to the reality of the very specific job that the person was doing. And, and I think that we didn't call them pathways, but I think those were very close to what I would assume is the better way to construct a pathway. It's to give people a specific direction through a range of options to get to a specific destination. And I think a lot of people are falling short. I'd say what would be really interesting, Joanne, is to first of all get a perspective from the people listening in here as instructional designers, and also to get a perspective from them as consumers of learning and take a pulse check on how they are perceiving what's going on with this big shift. And I think we could probably try to bring in some people in either of those two camps, either learners who are experiencing it or L&D folks who think that it could and should perhaps be done a little bit more carefully and a little bit more thoughtfully than we fear it might be done. Does that make sense? Do you think that will be a good way to go from here? I do, because a lot of times learners aren't always um, aware of what they don't know. So when you're an instructional designer by assignment, for example, um, you probably came from a different area. And so you may not be aware of all the content that could be out there. So it would be interesting to see what learners within these pathways, if they're having a similar kind of thing, where they sort of feel like there's so many options, they don't know how to choose to go through it. Whereas a sequenced program, and I think that's what pathways are trying to get at, is that sequenced recommended system. Um, is it really based on uh, all the principles that we would hope as instructional designers that those pathways are? So bringing in some experts, um, folks who are actually in the, the process of creating those pathways could be really helpful both from the consumer perspective and from the creator perspective. I think that's what we should do. And if people want to respond to this topic, I'm sure there's a lot of interest in what we're saying, either in agreement or in disagreement. I think that would be a really interesting dialogue for us to, to be having with people. 
good. Absolutely. I think it's a great idea, Graham. We'll go ahead and we will schedule some of those in upcoming podcasts. So listeners, be ready for those. Um, it's a hot topic that is getting more and more attention. Listeners, you've been listening to the Leaders in Learning Design podcast by Blue Consulting and Resourcing, a regular podcast for cutting edge learning design. 